What's going on, Renaissance fam? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And yo, this is not a drill. It's about to go down next week. Now, I don't think I've talked about it in, uh, in full terms, but what is our plan for our regathering process? So I want you to think about it going in a couple of phases. The first phase, which is happening next Sunday, May 16th, is a pretty limited um, in-person, but powerful, pr profound worship service. But yo, it's gonna be like, it's gonna be like a sneaker drop for the Kobe's. You really gonna have to be ready when it opens up because we're limiting the first number of services to just 100 people for the first couple of weeks at least. So you're really gonna to wanna to make sure you register. Uh, registrations open up Tuesday at 10 a.m. And uh, the easiest way actually to register will be on our, on our app. So if you haven't downloaded that app yet, make sure you download that so you can be the first to know, first to register for our in-person services. Now, as we get closer to July and in the month of July, our hope is that we will be in a bigger space where we can accommodate uh, hopefully more and more of our congregation in person for those willing and ready to get back. So uh, that's what it's going to be. But I'm excited for uh, next week and coming together. But I'm also really excited for this word right now. It's a really important topic. So let me pray for us before we get into it. Uh, God, our Father, um, I'm so grateful just for opportunities uh, to connect with your people and most importantly, Lord, with your word. So Father, in this moment, I pray that you would just reduce me and increase you. Lord, help us to connect with you in this moment. Bless us in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, a couple of weeks ago actually marked a milestone in my life. Uh, it marked 10 years since my late wife, Danielle, passed away from cancer. Now, in the last 10 years, I've worked a lot with an organization called Angiosarcoma Awareness. Angiosarcoma was a type of cancer that my late wife had, and like every sarcoma, it's a very interesting uh, cancer. Now, I don't know how much you know about cancer or oncology, but sarcomas are really interesting because they can appear anywhere on your body. So my late wife had it on her heart, and unfortunately, within 10 months after her diagnosis, she passed away. But there were a lot of other people who gotten, who've gotten angiosarcoma, and they're doing just fine. See, since, angi since angiosarcoma can live anywhere in the body, for a lot of people, they just got it on their arm or their scalp, and they went to the dermatologist, got it removed, and they've been fine ever since. Now, I don't know if it's just that one encounter or our culture, but um, since then, I've kind of been a hypochondriac and I've always been worried about getting cancer myself. And I've always wanted that if it ever does come my way, that instead of it being like in a hidden place like my heart, like my, uh, like my late wife had it, that it will be somewhere big and visible that I can get it easily taken care of. Uh, a couple of months after my late wife passed away, I got something called vertigo. Now for the uninitiated, vertigo basically is uh, something wrong with your inner ear nerves or your inner ear equilibrium, and it feels like the room is just doing circles nonstop. Uh, I had a cold and a, some sort of chest virus that spread to my inner ear nerves, and I had vertigo for about three days. And yo, I'm not gonna lie to y'all, like I was fully convinced that I was gonna die. Like I went on WebMD, which was mistake number one, and I was doing research on all of the symptoms that I had, and I was in my crib singing It's So Hard to Say Goodbye, I, I just knew that I was on my way out because I thought I had something in my brain. Now, obviously cancer is, is no laughing matter, but in this last number of years, uh, what I've discovered is that 
uh, with respect to our bodies, here's the reality. Things that are internal and invisible are like really dangerous. External and visible, yes, they're dangerous, but, but certainly not as much. Now, what is true about your body and my body is also true about our lives. The greatest threats that we face are not necessarily the things that we can see on the surface, but rather the unseen things that are underneath that will really hurt you. Now, in the past hundreds of years, the American church has been preoccupied and extremely worried and pre um, concerned about external things, things that you can see on the surface. And while those things are certainly important, it's not nearly as important as what's going on inside of us, the things that are unseen, the condition of our hearts, what we trust, the things that are actually making us go. Now, today I want to talk about something from the book of Exodus as we continue our series, which is probably um, the greatest danger that all of us face. And it's not something you woke up this morning thinking about probably, uh, but it's an incredibly, incredibly dangerous thing to us, and it's something that the Bible describes as idolatry. Now, idolatry isn't all about what you can see, but rather something you can't see. And one of the greatest dangers to our lives are the things that are invisible and underneath the surface. Those are the things that really should give us pause. So I want us to look at a scripture in Exodus 20. Um, this is in the, the part of the scripture called the Ten Commandments. We started a little bit of it last week, and we're not going to go through each one, but this is one that we had to hit. And here's what it says in Exodus 20 and 3. It says, do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Now, here in the book of Exodus, what was very commonplace was that people would make idols, that they would form and fashion things out of wood or out of gold or out of some physical object, and they were making things. Now, one of my fears is that a lot of us would hear this command in Exodus, and we would just think like, well, you know, I'm not making anything, so we would let ourselves off the hook. And we would think that this scripture might not apply to us as it applied to the ancient Israelites in the book of Exodus. But do not let yourself off the hook uh, just yet. Uh, New Testament authors, when they started thinking about this concept of idolatry, they extended it from the previous category of just things that you can form and fashion in your hands to the things that permeate all of our lives. In the book of Colossians 3 and 5, uh, the writer, a man named Apostle Paul, a church planter, he says this about idolatry. He says, covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness. Now, I've practiced how to pronounce that word like nine times because I didn't want to look foolish. But covetousness comes from the Greek word, I've also practiced this, pleonomia, uh, which basically means an eager desire for something. Now, here is the root of idolatry, and here's something that you really have to pay attention to. Idolatry is not about desire. Idolatry is about wanting things in the wrong order. So it's not just that you want things or that you desire things, but that you desire the right thing sometimes in the wrong order. There's an ancient African theologian by the name of St. Augustine, and he wrote in his book, one of his books, the essence of sin is disordered love. And it's not that we love something that we should not love, but that we love something in the wrong order. Now, what does this look like for me personally? I'm very glad you asked that question. Um, so 
one of the things that I've been really big into the last couple of years is this concept called affirmation. And I think American culture doesn't do a good job with this thing called affirmation because we tend to live on polar extremes with it. And one of the things that I've realized about my own life is that how much like I thrive off of really good and healthy forms of affirmation. A couple of years ago, uh, we had a marriage retreat and one of the exercises in the marriage retreat was for every couple to spend 15 minutes by themselves and every person to spend about 10 or 15 minutes by themselves and to truly write out affirmation to their spouse. As we were doing the exercise, I looked around the room after I was done and like the whole room was in that joint, shoulder bop crying, like you could hear people weeping. It was such a powerful exercise. In my own family, what we do every single birthday is we spend time looking people in the eye and affirming them, and it truly is a moving and powerful thing. Now, affirmation is a good thing, but affirmation could be idolatrous, a good thing in the wrong order or out of order in our lives. And I've seen this in my own life. I've talked about this. Uh, but think about this in, in, with yourself or your friends. Like, what would happen if you wanted affirmation more than you wanted integrity? Like, what would happen in your life if you wanted affirmation to be affirmed more than you wanted to be a person of integrity? Now, I don't think it takes too much imagination to know what would happen in those scenarios. I've seen this firsthand with friends. Uh, they would do anything if affirmation is a thing that you eagerly desire in a disordered way, man, you would do anything to get it, including betray relationships, betray family, and be a person that is just lacks integrity all together. It's wanting the right thing sometimes in, in the wrong order. Now, the scariest thing about idolatry is that it could be anything, and oftentimes it is anything. It's, a it's good things that we want more than we want God. It's this eager desire for something oftentimes more than we want God. Now, one of the things that I think the pandemic has unearthed for me and for a lot of people uh, is this concept that for a lot of people, they really struggled with connecting with God during the pandemic. And certainly, I am extremely excited to start to welcome people back to gather um, in person. I cannot wait for that to happen. But one thing I think the pandemic has exposed for a lot of people is that the reason some people have fallen away from God, from faith, once the, the church stopped having worship services was because in a lot of ways, you were coming to God for the feeling of God, not for God himself. Now, why do I say that? What worship services in person provide us is like really meaningful connection with God. And sometimes hearing the loud music, feeling the bass in your chest, being around people really is a powerful experience. But for a lot of people, once that was gone, once the feeling and the emotion was gone, it just wasn't the same anymore. They just didn't really have use for God in their lives. And here's the craziest concept. Like prayer didn't go anywhere. Like scripture never went anywhere. And in some cases, we had more time for prayer and scripture than we've ever had in our lives. But yet our, our passion and our burning for God has gone away in so many different cases. People have stopped pursuing God because in many different ways, what we wanted to feel, and this is true of me sometimes as well, what we wanted, what our eager desire was, we wanted to feel and experience with God more than we wanted God himself. Now, idolatry is, we can go down a very long list of different things, and I was thinking about what are the things in our society, in our culture, in me, 
that are just these hidden things underneath the surface that really do mar our relationship with God. And one of these things is something called autonomy or self-determination. Now, I think in some cases, autonomy or self-determination, wanting the ability to do what we please and want, in some ways, we do that because it's a reaction to previous hurts and abuses. So in some cases, we don't want to be under oppressive systems or oppressive relationships, so we poke our chest out and make sure that we are not being trampled over. And before we know it, self-determination, doing what we want to do, unhindered by outside forces, becomes something that we desire. The problem is it becomes idolatrous to a certain extent when we want to be free from everything, any obstacle, even to the point that we review any restriction on our lives, any restriction on our lives, even restrictions from God as oppressive and as wrong. And our eagerness to have self-determination in so many cases makes it, it makes it an idol. We want our relationship with Jesus to be like our bowl at Chipotle, fully customizable. Now here's a danger in that. There is a restriction to the amount of freedom that anybody should possess. Uh, and we see this in, in nature and in life. Like if you were to go to SeaWorld, um, and I don't even know if they still keep animals like this in captivity, but if you were to go to SeaWorld and let Free Willy out of his little bowl um, and put him in the ocean, that would be freedom. But if you were to take an orca and to take him out of the water and put him on two-fifth, it would die. Because freedom is, true freedom is being under the right restrictions. So real freedom, real freedom in life and certainly biblical freedom that God wants us to have is not freedom from all restrictions. It's being constrained under the right restrictions. And so many of us, we have this eager desire for self-determination. And what might have started in some ways in good and earnest ways, that has become a good thing that you pursue outside of order. And you want that more than you want, even in some cases, to be in a relationship with God. Now, for the last number of years, one of the prayers that has centered my life is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, often commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And there's a line in the Lord's Prayer, which is the scariest line in all of Scripture. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Here's a line. Your will be done. We see this in Jesus' own life where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying earnestly over and over again. And he tells God, his Father, God, but not my will be done. Not my will, but your will be, be done. That's the scariest line in all of Scripture to me because I would love to have autonomy. I would love to be free from restrictions. I would love to do things the way I want to, to do things. And that's not the way it looks like to be in relationship with the God of Scripture. So we can go down a very long list of different things that our eager desires for would truly and fully actually turn into idols. It could be relationships, success, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about it this morning. My boy said this in one of his sermons, and uh, it was such a profound line, I just figured I would quote it. Um, he said this, strongholds in, that we see in Scripture, strongholds, are actually strong hugs because we tend to love our idols. You know what your idol is? Like, if you want to, like, figure out what your idol is, like, what is a thing that would make you just, like, turn off the TV right now? Or to take your phone and be like, nope, not going down that road anymore. 
What is a topic that you were thinking to yourself? It's cool if Jordan talks about affirmation and himself, but like, what's this street? If I would have come down that street, you would have just started to feel just this discomfort. Well, in some ways, that's our idol coming to the surface. Let me ask you a question. What if your business fails? What if your kids' lives is fully mediocre? What if you never get the relationship? What if your prayers for health are never answered? What if you never get the approval you want? What if that relationship is never mended? What if your life is a life full of discomfort and uncertainty? Is God worthy of your worship in that scenario? If the answer is no, if you don't believe the answer is no, then it might be because these are the idols in our life that are controlling us. Now, in many ways, our wrestle with idolatry is something that happens literally every single day. I've heard it referred to that our hearts are like idol-making factories, and we are extremely proficient at this. And what I believe that God wants for, for us is not to take something from us, but to give us freedom, and God wants us to be free from our idols. Now, the main problem that we have and the main problem that the children of Israel had wasn't that they had um, too high a view of the things that they made to be idols. So my problem is not that I think approval is good or affirmation is good or that comfort is good. My problem and your problem is that we have too low of a view of God. So there's a couple of things from the scripture in Exodus 20 that I, I really want us to, to look at and consider from this text. Number one, it's that God should never be compared. Number two is that God should never be limited. And number three, God can never be manipulated. Let's go back to the text for a second. Reread Exodus 20 and 3 and 4. It says, do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Now, what's the first thing we see in this text that I want to pull out? It's that God doesn't want any idols formed in his likeness because God does not want to be compared to anything in all of creation, in the heavens above, on the earth below, on the, on, in the sea. God doesn't want to be compared to anything because God truly is incomparable. In Isaiah 46 and 9, it says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. In Psalm 145 and 3, it says, The Lord is great and is highly praised. Yo, his greatness is unsearchable. Now, this is not meant to know, this is not meant to say that we can't know who God is at all, but rather to convey that we should never fall prey to the false idea that we got, we got God figured out or that anything else in all of creation is similar to him. Now, in a lot of different ways, um, a lot of us kind of do want an approach to God where we take some pieces of Jesus and take some pieces of what grandma said and take some pieces of what whatever modern philosopher you're listening to, and we can figure out on our own what combination of these pieces we would like to be something that we follow. And in reality, whenever we do that, we're actually not following any system. We're not following any religion. We're certainly not following Jesus. We're just following ourselves in, in disguise. Now, I've also thought about this. In times where Jordan Rice, for example, has sought and had, had this eager desire for approval what, what I've really been doing is lowering God. Like, I've been comparing God to other people. And I was thinking about, that, I was thinking about this this morning. Like, on the last day 
when I meet Jesus face to face, if Jesus looks at me and says, well done, my good and faithful servant, on that day, in that moment, what would it matter if 10,000 people would have rejected me before then? It wouldn't have at all. In these moments where we are eagerly desiring something more than we were wanting God or loving the right things in the wrong order, what we're doing is we're just lowering God. We're lowering God and we're lessening who he is. And God warns us that he should never be compared. The second thing that I want to talk about in this text is that not only should God never be compared and his approval of you should never be compared, but God should never be limited. Now here's the thing that's profound about an idol. If God were something that we can see, then he'd be something that we can constrain to a specific time and place and look. But over and over again in scripture, God shows his people that he does not want to be limited. In Acts 17, 24 and 25, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Now, God is not limited to a place and a time. Not only that, but God is not limited to your ability to understand him. God is not limited to your ability to figure out his ways, as he says in Isaiah 55, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are from the earth, that's how far my ways are from your ways and my thoughts are from your thoughts. Now, in a very practical sense, so many of us struggle with concepts like forgiveness because in some ways we are, we're limiting God to what we can figure out, to a God that we can form and fashion. As a pastor, I get to talk to so many people who wrestle through this concept of what it means to live as a forgiven person. Like, how amazing would your life be if you truly internalized the life altering power of the gospel that says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has separated you from your sins. But we often don't live as forgiven people, and part of that reason is idolatry. Now, I don't want to be overly, I don't want to oversimplify it. Um, there are other factors that prevent us from truly um, feeling forgiven and living in light of forgiveness. Uh, one of these things is well above my pay grade, and it's trauma. Uh, particularly trauma that has happened to us in our childhood. And there's so many different things that have been done to you that make it just difficult for you to forgive yourself in a variety of ways or to feel forgiven, to feel loved. And uh, that is something that you alongside very wise counsel and a therapist and a team of people will hopefully help unearth what it means to live and fully receive God's forgiveness. For other people, uh, you truly haven't yet entered into a real relationship with Jesus to hear him tell you, um, uh, that well done, that to hear God tell you that to whisper in your ear that all is forgiven, that God has forgiven you by nailing his son Jesus to the cross. But the reason that a lot of us watching this video right now struggle with forgiveness is because of idolatry. And I say that, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow. I say this because of this. You can't see yourself forgiving you of this, so you don't think God will forgive you. What are you doing? You're not just raising yourself up in your eyes, but you're lowering God in your eyes as well. And you're saying, because I can't see a way that God would truly forgive me, ah, uh, I don't think he did. And you can read scriptures until you're blue in the face and it still will never really hit you in your chest. What are you doing? We are elevating ourselves. We're limiting God based on what we ourselves can experience. 
Now, another facet of limiting God happens in an arena which is life's most painful arena, which is called suffering. And um, many of us, just because we don't see a reason or we don't see a way that God can redeem a situation, if we don't see why God allows evil and suffering, we sometimes conclude that God is not really real. And let me just say this from the outset that uh, in times when I was going through my most difficult moments, I honestly like struggled for real. So when I was watching my late wife waste away from cancer, uh, I went back to like the first questions of faith, like is there, is there a God? And I greatly struggled because I didn't see any way on the planet that the God that I thought I understood would allow this to happen. Not me, like I was doing all of the right things. And what was happening in that moment? In some ways, I was limiting God and God's ability, as he says, as scripture says in Romans 8 and 28, that God is working out all things, not some things, all things for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. Now, to this day, I still don't know what is the good that God has called, uh, that God is working out. But by faith, I trust that. And I know that just because I can't figure out good reasons for something to have happened doesn't mean that God was absent or that God is not, God is not really real. Uh, I'm not proud of it, but in those moments, I actually became, for one very brief day, I became an internet troll. Uh, there was an author who wrote an article on some website called, Suffering Does Not Rob You of Your Joy, Idolatry Does. And I was reading the article, and I was so angry. If I would have seen that author, like, face-to-face, -face, I really would have ran up on him and had a few words with him. And we went back and forth in an exchange, and basically... As much as suffering is really, truly a miserable thing, a lot of times it is not the situation that makes people leave the faith. It's not a situation that leads you to despair or despondency. It's truly that our expectations of what we have deemed to be acceptable di divine behavior, this situation is outside of that. And because we can't figure it out, God must not be real or God certainly is not good. And this is not to say or to say that situations are not incredibly painful, that God doesn't call us to grieve, but God does call us to wait in this confusing in-between, trusting him and not lowering him to our level. The last thing I think God really wanted to do by telling us uh, to not make any idols, and we see this in the, in the book of Exodus, is you know what? God doesn't want to be manipulated. God doesn't want to be manipulated. If God could be captured in a physical presence, then God could be manipulated to suit certain people's interests. And God certainly has been manipulated to suit certain people's interests. Uh, one of the most op oppressive things that have happened in the last 500 years is the invention of a blonde hair, blue-eyed, white Jesus. And what this was aimed at was manipulating people to ascribe divinity to whiteness. In other words, the primary tool, check this out, y'all, the primary tool to create notions of white supremacy in terms of intellect, beauty, and normative spirituality was the creation of blonde hair and blue-eyed Jesus. Now, why does God tell us to not create uh, an image of him after any, any of our likeness? Because he knows how things could be manipulated and certainly have been manipulated. I don't know that you can point to one thing else that's been done in the last number of years that can 
that really truly has deformed so much of our theology and the way that we understand God and the way that we see who's in and who's out, what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. So God doesn't want us to ever compare him, to limit him, or to manipulate him. Now, manipulation was, is not just for people who did something 500 years ago, but manipulation is also something that, that I do. When I have an eager desire for something sometimes and I love the right thing in the wrong order, in many cases, I find myself arguing with God that, God, unless you give me this, then I don't know if it's worth following you. And you have to answer that this. What is your fill in the blank? But here's one of the things I found to be true in my own life. Um, idols can't swim. And I'm not just saying that because, like, the physical idols of made of wood or gold or whatever, they're inanimate objects. But I'm saying if you really want to evict idolatry in your heart, then what we have to do is drown them in the ocean of God's goodness because they can't swim. And the only way I know how to do that is not through anything spectacular or something you've never heard of, but it's through God's ordinary means of grace that he has given to us to remind us who he is so that we can bathe and saturate ourselves in who he is as a person so that we would never reduce him to our own terms. Now, ordinary grace, that God, means of grace that God gives us of worshiping together, whether that's online or in person, of community that we have in our DNA groups that are restarting on May, the week of May 23rd, of scripture and meditation that God gives us as tools, as means of grace for us to experience his goodness, his life, and his power in real and tangible ways. Now, for the last number of weeks, I've had a scripture in my wallet that I've really been wrestling through. Um, See, so one of the things I really wrestle with is, is control. Like, I really want to be in control of situations. Uh, in some ways, I eagerly desire control to a point to where I know it's idolatrous. And uh, sometimes I'll be standing in line at the bodega and I'll say, instead of checking your phone and reading Twitter or reading about the Knicks or back, uh, I'll take out this out of my wallet and I'll read it. It's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. That's my prayer for me, and that's my prayer for you. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, our Father, I pray that you would uh, allow us to see what's going on inside of us, that you would shine a light deep down into our hearts, and God, you would give us a distaste with the things that we have put equal to you or on top of you. God, help us to see and to engage in the means of grace to evict the things in our hearts that have no place being there. God, help us to put you above all things because truly you belong there and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.